Good morning, Church of the Beloved. It's good to be back with you guys. Um, you know, I was um, away on vacation uh, in California with my family for a week, and then you know, I had the opportunity to preach a baptism service. But you know, the funny thing is, since I last, uh, last preached that sermon a few weeks ago when I talked about my vacation, I probably had the best response uh, from people in terms of follow-up uh, to a sermon ever because multiple people have come to me and asked me about you know, how we did at Disneyland. Uh, in regards to the fast pass, a lot of people come and ask me, like, you know, how many rides did you get to go on? Did you manage the fast passes uh, in a strategic way? Did you get to maximize your t- utility at Disneyland? And I just thought that was that was funny. Disneyland was fun. It was like 97 degrees when we were there. Um, so at one point, around two or three o'clock in the afternoon, I thought I was going to die. Um, but we made it back in one piece, and uh, everybody, um, you know, mostly had a good time. But when I was in Los Angeles, I had the opportunity to meet with. Um, one of my good friends, a, a friend from, uh, that I went to college with, a guy who was a couple years younger than me, um, I, I very affectionately call him my, he's like my younger brother. And I've really, really uh, cared about him for a long time. And uh, we've kept in touch, even though he's been in L.A. for about uh, probably almost eight years now. But every time I'm out there, I get to uh, catch up with him. And, um, you know, we were talking this time just about his love life. You know, because he's, um, you know, getting to his mid to later 30s now. Uh, and he's not married, and um, you know, I just wanted to kind of an update, like, what's going on with you, man? Like, you know, give me an update. And, and the thing that you have to know about him is that he did go through a pretty bad breakup about uh, 12 or 18 months ago. It was, a, it was a pretty hard breakup for him, and uh, it's just been really hard for him uh, to kind of get back into a healthy relationship. If you've ever been through a breakup with somebody, uh, you can probably relate that when you give yourself to somebody, when you open up yourself to somebody, when you trust in somebody and that relationship falls apart, then there can be some reluctance or hesitancy to open up again, to trust again, to give yourself uh, to another person again. And so that's why commonly it makes sense for people who come out of a serious, uh, serious or long-term relationship to take some time to heal to lick their wounds, to learn how to be whole again before they go into the next, hopefully, healthy relationship. But it just got me thinking because, you know, today we're uh, starting a sermon series on uh, the book of Titus. And, you know, in Titus, the first chapter, it talks about uh, the qualifications of elders and the need to appoint elders in the local church. And I think it relates because I think in a lot of ways, our church, you know, we've gone through a transition in leadership. And a lot of the feelings that you have when you go through a romantic breakup, whether it's, you know, can I really bring myself to trust again? Should I really get back into this? I opened myself up one time and it didn't go how I had hoped or how I intended. Should I open myself up to this again? A lot of those questions or concerns, I think, rightfully so, are probably going through a lot of your heads or hearts right now as we talk about the idea of appointing new elders. Is this really the right time? Should we take more time and to try to heal or, or, or lick our wounds a little bit? But I hope, you know, as we go through today's scripture and we talk about uh, the qualifications of elders and the design and the reason why God, through Paul, tells us to appoint elders in the, holy, in the, in the local church, I hope we can see the importance, the value, and how it is actually for our good um, to obey this biblical concept. 
So as it's uh, the first uh, week we're in this sermon series on uh, the book of Titus, I think it makes sense to uh, give a little bit of introduction, a little bit of context of what we're working with here. So the first question is, who is Titus? Um, so it's, it's helpful to know the person behind the letter, who's writing and, and, and who it's written to. So the, the book of Titus is written by the Apostle Paul to a Gentile convert named Titus. In this passage, he refers to Titus as one of his spiritual sons in the faith. And Paul, throughout his ministry, and uh, he had many converts, but devoted himself more fully to just a few men, to really disciple them and pour into their lives. And we see this in his letters. Um, These people include Titus and Timothy. So Titus, this disciple of Paul, is now on this island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And, uh, and what's he doing in Crete? Well, you have to understand, Crete, at least at that time, was known uh, and reputable for their ungodly nature. Paul himself, in verse 12, quotes from Crete's own prophet who says about their people, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. They were known as lying Cretans. In fact, the Cretans were such notorious liars that the Greek language coined a word, krezito, uh, which basically means to play the Cretan, which meant to lie. So you have this minister of the word, a, minister, uh, a missionary, Titus, and he's hanging around this island of Crete because the gospel had somehow sprouted in this most inhospitable Cretan soil. Cretans, we see in the word, were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, where they heard uh, Peter preach that sermon, and some of them had been converted, and they brought the faith back to Crete. But this, this, this early church in Crete is plagued with immaturity. The Gentiles who got converted through uh, the efforts of this early Cretan church, they came with a lot of baggage. And as verse 11 indicates, some of the Hellenistic Jews, they were promoting false doctrine as well, making for a very, very difficult situation. So what you have here is you have this new church in this very worldly, sinful place. And it's just causing a lot of confusion. What parts of the gospel are true? What is important doctrine? Well, how are we supposed to live in the midst of all this sinful worldliness. So Paul starts out this letter in verses 1 through 4 by addressing these, kind of communicating, this is the purpose of why I'm writing this letter. And in that verse, we can kind of summarize it as this. Paul's writing that to be God's people in a pagan world, we who are saved by God's grace must engage in good deeds under the authority of the local church. That's kind of the thesis or the summary statement about what Paul is hoping to address in the book of Titus. He's saying there should be a difference between believers and those who are not. That there should be something that distinguishes a believer from those who do not believe. And if we hope to see that happen, one of the ways that we see that happen, everybody is saved by grace, but there are good deeds Behavior, action has to point to a distinction between those who are followers of Christ and those who are not. And that gets developed through the local church. 
If the gospel is going to continue to go forth and draw people to Jesus, then, then Christians must look different than Cretans, and it begins with its leaders. Now, the problem, now, now when Paul talks about this problem that he has to address, the first thing he really gets into is appointing elders. Paul's plan for the glory of God and for the good of Crete is to appoint elders. It's one of the three pastoral epistle books that helps with church organization, leadership, and maturity, building following incredible gospel ministry recorded in the book of Acts. And sometimes I think if you're a believer and you've been in the church long enough, you sit there and you think about the book of Acts and you think, I wish our church was more like the book of Acts. Because you see the way that the Holy Spirit moves there in power and we're like, we wish that our church had more of that movement. But I've never really heard any Christian say that I wish our church was more like the book of Titus. But actually in the book of Acts and Titus, there's this call to order an organization so that we could find and so that we could see formation, spiritual formation and maturity happen in our church. And why is this important? Because where there is gospel movement, there needs to be gospel maturity. And elders, the appointing of elders is necessary in both. Okay, so when we talk about elders, I'm going to make three points about elders and their function and their value to us in the local church. So the first is that elders are involved. The second is that elders are worthy of imitation. And lastly, the elders instruct uh, from the word. The first point is that elders are involved. They're involved. Paul writes this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That phrase, put what remained into order, it's actually almost, it's a medical term. It was applied to the setting of a crooked limb, like a, like a broken arm, like setting it into order, taking what is wrong and disfigured and perverse and putting it right again. There were crooked things that had to be set straight amongst the congregations in Crete. In the context of a church surrounded by an immoral culture, this is going to be the way that discipleship is structured and fostered in the life of this congregation, from the elders on down. Christian discipleship happens in the local church, and it involves a careful ministry, not simply of one pastor or one elder or one shepherd, but elders, plural. Look at that phrase, appoint elders in every, turn, in every town. See, the, the, the word elder has less to do with age and more to do with maturity. We don't necessarily in the church equate the oldest man in the village to be the wisest man in the village. And this is important to, be, to have discipleship happen from mature believers. When I first accepted Christ, I was like 17 years old. I was in high school. I was doing all kinds of stupid stuff with my life. And when I accepted Christ, I expected my best Christian friend to be the one who mentored me. And it was a mess because he was actually looking up to me. And so, like, I'd be like, oh, you know, do you want to go do this thing? Do you want to go hang out here? Do you want to go do this with these people? And I was expecting him to mentor me, but he was trying to impress me. So he'd be like, yeah, let's go do it. So we just ran amok and did a lot of stupid stuff in our lives. There has to be maturity in the church for mentorship and discipleship to happen. And again, the term here is that they are to appoint elders plural, not elders singular. Not just one shepherd, but 
multiple. There should be enough elders locally that you should know them. Right? That's what it means to appoint elders in every city. They should be available enough. There should be enough that you should know them and that they should know you. That's important. Because a lot of us, even in the, in the church today, we think all, it's all about just one gifted pastor. Right? Like it doesn't matter if you know this person at all. It doesn't matter if anybody in the church knows you. As long as you can go and sit in an auditorium and see uh, a telecast of some great orator, that that's what's important for you when it comes to discipleship in your faith. But what we see here in the book of Titus is something radically different. He says to appoint elders, again plural, in every town. There should be enough elders that are available to you in your church that you are known and that they are known to you. Uh, it, what, an example of this is, um, I watched this show, it's kind of like a, a thing that I'm embarrassed to admit, but I watched this show called 90 Day Fiancé. You know, and, uh, well, I guess you guys watch it too. But the premise of the show is that these people fall in love, like, they do these, like, there's, like, global dating apps now, I guess. Right? This is, like, way beyond, you know, what I did back in the day. But there's global dating apps where you can get matched, not with people in your neighborhood, in your community, but people in different countries. And so these people are constantly on there trying to find love with people in other countries, and they, they meet over you know, social media or something, and they, they talk and they get to know each other by messaging each other and talking on the phone and sending each other pictures. And so after a while, they decide to come together and get married, and they have 90 days to decide if they really want to get married. But a lot of times, the premise of the show is that it's the first time they're actually meeting in person. It's the first time the person that they've known, gotten to know uh, on that iPhone screen is actually in, you know, breathing the same air as them. And it creates all kinds of drama. You know, because people use filters on their photos and they look a lot better in the photos that they send than they do in person. Or people send photos of what they used to look like 20 years ago and they meet them and like, oh my gosh. You know, and there's all these different ways. Like you, there's, there's, there's ways that you can behave when you're just calling somebody from an hour, for an hour a day that it's hard to kind of behave when you're with them all the time. And, and I bring this up is because um, there's, 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 there's something to be said for, about knowing somebody afar, but it's different than really knowing somebody. And again, what we're talking about, elders who are involved enough that your elders should know you. They are local. They're not on some national level. They aren't people who are too busy to meet with you. They should be local enough and available enough that you should have a relationship with them. And I say this knowing that, you know, even for me, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to meet with everybody in our congregation. And I've had to repent and I apologize for that a lot to some of the people who, I mean, there's people who've been trying for weeks, if not a month, to meet with me. And it's just been difficult. But I do think that this is something that we shouldn't give up on and that we should still tr- continue to try to meet with each other because I think it's important. I think it's biblical. So elders should be uh, involved. The second point are, is that elders are worthy of imitation. Elders are worthy Im- of imitation. Do you know that we were all created to imitate? That we were all created for imitation? The, the Word of God says that we were created in the image of God, that we are image bearers. 
We were created to be a reflection or a representation of something other than ourselves. We were created to be a reflection and a representation of God. It's how we were created, and it's in our design. Okay, but sin changed everything. When Paul writes, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, I think it also kind of translates to what happened in terms of our imitation, that we were supposed to be these image bearers of God, but instead we started to try to reflect images of created things. We started to try to imitate or follow things of this world, lesser things, things apart from God. And what you imitate is what you will follow. I think that's why, one of the reasons why Scripture describes us as sheep. It's not a flattering thing. He's not saying you're cute and cuddly. Sheep are so dumb that they'll follow anything. It's, I mean, I don't know, but from what I've read, sheep are so dumb that they'll follow another sheep off of a cliff to its death. And that's what the scriptures, that's what the psalmist, that's what they're saying about you and me is that we are so prone to imitate, we are so designed to follow that once we are separated from God, once we stop reflecting his image, we're just constantly looking for other things to imitate and other things to follow, even if it is to our own detriment. And I think this points to something that we all feel in our lives, Because our need to imitate and to follow dictates so many of the decisions that you make in your life. It determines what car you drive. It determines the brand names that you wear. It determines the magazines and the books and the TV shows that you read. In L.A., my my wife met up with one of our old friends who's now an Instagram influencer. There's a whole industry that profits over the fact that you are so prone to imitate that you'll pay money for it. That this friend of ours, all she does is post things about her life. She posts about what she eats or the things that she does or the things that she's looking at. And somehow she creates this image of her life that you want. And she tells you can have a little bit of it by clicking this link and purchasing this item. It's all based on the fact that we are so designed to imitate something else. We even do it subconsciously. I've talked about it before, but every time I go home to my parents' home and my mother complains about my dad, without almost immediately, I go home and I apologize to my wife. Because all the annoying, frustrating things about dad, I, my dad, I've somehow imitated in my own life. And I see how it affects my wife. We are so designed to imitate and to follow. And what Paul is saying here is that we need to be careful about the people that we imitate and follow, and we need to be careful and make sure that they are worthy of imitation. That's what he's doing when he puts out all these qualifications, that they have to be above reproach, that they can't be violent, that they can't be greedy for gain, that they have to be hospitable. All these things he's saying, be careful who you imitate and follow. They need to look like this. They need to match these, meet these qualifications. 
So what does it mean to imitate our elders? What does this look like? Are elders supposed to be our spiritual role models? Are they put in place to be these spiritual measuring sticks? What does it mean that elders should be worthy of imitation? Well, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians, he writes this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that's something to kind of remember because a lot of times and a lot of the resources that I've read about this passage suggest that these elders should just be these people with perfect character, that they should be these incredibly righteous and impeccably moral people. A lot of these people, a lot of these experts suggest that Paul is saying that competency and charisma, those things are overrated, but what we should look for is leaders with this impeccable character. That we don't need people with the, who, who are the shiniest leaders or the most gifted speaker, but what we need is people who are absolutely upright and who possess perfect character. But, but, but aren't perfect character and impeccable righteousness isn't that a competency? Like when you go to a job interview, what you're fundamentally, at its core, what you're trying to do is you're saying, you can uh, have an idea of my future performance based on my past performance, right? And you're basically saying to that interviewer, I went to school and I studied this, and now I'm qualified for this position. And in the same way, that's what we do when we approach this list of qualifications of elders in that way. We're saying that we need people who say that I've been going to church for a long time. And I've worked hard to be a better, more upright person. And now I'm qualified to be an elder. How are those two things any different? Further, look at the qualifications. Okay? Paul starts off by saying he needs to be above reproach. Husband of one wife, check. Children and are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Not even the charge of it. And then again, I think he groups these other characteristics and these other qualifications in another list by bringing up must be above reproach again. But then he goes into not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not drunkard, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Like, look at that list. What self-aware person would read a list like that and raise your hand and be like, that's me. I meet all of those things. I should be your elder. Nobody thinks that way, at least nobody who has any kind of self-awareness at all. And the thing is, I don't think this list of qualifications, I don't think it's supposed to do, be like the spiritual to-do list. I don't think the purpose of it is to check off all the ones that you're good at, pat yourself on the back, circle the ones that you're lacking, and then just go buy books on it, research it, try harder, make different commitments, come up with a 10-step plan so that you can be less greedy for gain. I don't think that's the point of it. While natural logic tells us that Paul is looking for morally and spiritually upright people because I think that's the way that our minds think, I don't think that's necessarily true. Paul isn't extorting Titus to find the least sinful person to be the leader. 
Jesus is head of the church, not any elder. So no elder bears the burden of being the sinless enough person, the one-eyed enough king in the land of the blind. Paul is not suggesting that the less sinful can lead the more sinful. Instead, I think, underneath it all, he's pointing to a specific gift for a specific role. And I think what Paul's talking about is he's talking about integrity. I think he's talking about integrity. Think again about the way that I think Paul splits up these qualifications into two lists by the way that he brings up above reproach twice. The first list is grouped together in how the elders relates to his family, husband of own wife, having good kids. The second list is grouped together in how an elder relates to his church. He says that the elder is a steward over God's church and therefore it must be above reproach. And he lists all these qualifications. And I think this points to integrity because Paul is saying that you have to be, a, be above reproach. And do you know how you know if your elder is above reproach? How do you know if he's blameless? How do you know if he has spiritual integrity? Ask his family and ask his church. His family and his church mix it together with some time, and they can tell you if that man possesses integrity. Not integrity in a morally upright, I will never tell a lie, I'll never make a mistake kind of way, but in de- integrity defined by consistency, soundness, what you see is what you get kind of thing. See, because every qualification <clears throat> that Paul lists up there, every qualification, you can fake it for a little while. Every qualification can be puffed up. Every disqualifier can be hidden for a while. Most people in this room know that you shouldn't appear to be arrogant, that people would find that unattractive, that people wouldn't like it if when they were around you, all you did was brag about how great you are. So what do you do? You learn to hide it. You learn not to boast about yourself so much. You might even learn to make uh, self-deprecating jokes sometimes. But in the midst of it all, even when you're trying to hide how arrogant you are, you're as entitled and as arrogant as anybody. Most people know that it's not attractive or deemed positive when people are quick-tempered or violent. So they bite their tongue whenever they get angry. They make sure that they don't show how upset or, or, or anger, angry that they are. Angry they are, whatever. But, but, but when they're alone, when they're driving in the car alone, they get as much road rage as anybody else. You can fake even being holy and upright. It's not hard to, be whole, to, 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 to look like you're holy in the church. All of us, if I told you, if I asked you, write up five steps about how somebody can look like they're holding the church, I think you guys could all do a pretty good job on it. And I think those steps would be pretty similar list by list. You could tell somebody when in the worship service you should raise your hands. You can tell somebody, go around and tell people that you'll pray for them. And you know, if you want to be your extra holy, make sure you follow up with them. Right? You can tell people how to appear holy. You can tell them which ministries look like they're the holiest ones, are the most impressive. You can tell them to learn bass so they can come up and perform on the worship team. It's, you can fake all of it. And we all know that because in today's culture, there's this idea that perception really is reality. 
All that matters is your reputation and what people think about you, not how you really are. Appearances are, are more important than reality. And just to be clear, it's, it's not hard to clean the outside of a cup. It's not hard to manage how people perceive you and to make sure that your reputation is stellar because people have been doing it for thousands of years. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were experts at managing how people perceive them, washing that outside of the cup. Given all the famous pastors who have fallen recently, it seems that leaders are still doing it today. Leaders who only appear to be godly will eventually be exposed. But we're still attracted to the people who just appear to be godly. We fall for it over and over and over again. Because this is the easiest thing to imitate. And we stayed in a hotel when we were on vacation. And one thing I never do in hotels is I never use those glass cups. Because every undercover news show I have ever seen tells me that they do not wash those glass cups. I've actually seen in some undercover footage that for some reason the, 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 the cleaning lady would take those glass cups and she would wash it in the toilet. I don't know why she would do that. It's like an extra step to be extra dirty. But, 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 but you look at the cup and it looks clean. But if you know that the inside is dirty, then if you drink from it, you'll get sick and you'll suffer from it. We should all want leaders with spiritual integrity. We should want leaders who care more about reality than perception. We should want leaders who are more interested in how clean the inside of the cup is than the outside of it. And again, you know who knows how clean the inside of your cup is? It's your spouse. It's your kids. It's your church. They know the difference between your perception and your reality, and they know if you're a person who has integrity or who lacks it. You know, 1 Timothy 3, you know, it's, it's a similar list of qualifications that Paul brings up, but he actually kind of goes further into it, and he's saying, if you are an elder and your household is a mess, it basically disqualifies you from ministry. And, and if you hear what Paul is saying, is that you can look holy, you can do all the right things, you should look like somebody who should be an elder, do all the right things on a Sunday, preach good sermons, all that stuff. But if your home life is a mess, if your kids don't respect you, if your wife looks at you and like, thinks that you're a hypocrite, then you should just be disqualified from it all. None of it matters because an elder must have integrity. If there's a difference between who you appear to be when you're preaching and how the people of your church interact with you on any other day, then that's a problem. If there's a difference between how I appear to be on Sundays from 9 a.m. till noon and my son looks at me and thinks you're a hypocrite because when you go home, you're a totally different person, then you have to struggle and think to yourself, which person is the real person here? Who is the real me? And just to be clear, I am not diminishing the importance of these qualifications in, in today's passage. This is what our leaders should look like. Our leaders should look Christ-like. And, and I, don't want to, I, don't want to, and I want to emphasize this because I think at our church, a lot of times we talk about justification and we skip out on sanctification. If people are earnestly in love, walking with Jesus and they're loving Jesus, then they should be sanctified. They should look more like Christ. But I'm just warning you 
Do they look more like, do they look like Jesus because they know how to clean the outside of their cups well? Do they look like Jesus because they know how to manage their reputation? Do they look like Jesus because they know how to put on a good show? Or do they look like Jesus because they know how to clean the inside of their cup? Do they look like Jesus because they know that they are utterly helpless without him? Do they look like Jesus because they are dependent on him? Do they look like Jesus because they are constantly going to the cross and clinging to it? And this is the point. The revelation of sin in an elder's life does not in itself disqualify someone as an elder because you don't necessarily want elders who are sinless. What you want is elders that know they are in need of Christ as much or more than any of us. Practically speaking, do you know how to know? Do you want to know how you can measure the spiritual integrity of an elder? I think it's this. You can measure the spiritual integrity of an elder by the way in which they repent. Tim Keller writes this, most churches make the mistake of selecting as leaders the confident, the competent, and the successful. But what you need most in a leader is someone who has been broken by the knowledge of his or her sin and even greater knowledge of Jesus' costly grace. The number one leaders in every church ought to be the people who repent the most fully without excuses because you don't need any excuses now. The most easily without bitterness, the most publicly and the most joyfully, they know their standing isn't based on their performance. How does you look at an elder and ask yourself, how does that person repent? When you tell an elder that they've hurt you, how do they respond? Do they get defensive? Do they turn to gaslighting and try to tell you, well, uh, you hurt me by telling me how I hurt you and shifting the tables on you? When you tell them that you have observed some sin in their life, do they get defensive and do they try to rationalize it? Do they try to hide behind their lack of malicious intention? Do they try to make excuses? How do your elders apologize to you? Can your elders admit mistakes? Can your elder ask you for forgiveness? The answer to these questions is largely determined by the way in which your elder repents. Because this is the thing about repentance. It shows how an elder interacts and receives the love of God. I, I saw this thing yesterday where... Um, Matthew, my uh, 20-month-old, was uh, getting into the kitchen cupboards and, I don't know, he was like grabbing glasses or something, something that was somewhat dangerous. And my wife yelled, you know, Matthew, no! Pretty harshly, loudly, whatever. Got his attention. And this is the thing that I, I noticed. Matthew put down the cups and ran to her. He ran to her. And it's a simple thing, but you know what? It's something that I think a lot of us forget because... I don't think Isaiah would do that now. I think if we yelled at my six-year-old, I think he would cry and think that we were mad at him. I think he would think that we don't want him to hug us or run to us for an embrace. But a thing that really little children know is that when they get disciplined, when they've made a mistake and they get corrected, that they run to the one who disciplines and corrects them because they have no doubt that that parent loves them, and is for them. And I bring that up because I think that's the key to repentance. 
Jack Miller, who was one of the um, mentors of Tim Keller, uh, would ask this question, when you repent, what look does God have on his face? When you repent, what look does God have on his face? I think for a lot of us, if we're honest, we think when we repent, maybe God looks at him and he's like, oh, gosh, again? He's kind of disappointed. Or maybe he's frustrated, or maybe he's getting short-tempered. But Jack Miller would suggest that God's face, when we come to him in repentance, is happy, is joyful, is a God who receives and who welcomes us. And I think if you repent well, that's one of the things that you know, that you know that you're a child of God, and you know that he's a good father who welcomes you when you come to him in repentance. Repentance is nothing to be afraid or ashamed of, but it's one of the ways that we both best understand God's great love for us, and that's a love that is life-changing. That's a life that's life-changing. On the very rare occurrence when someone tells me that I'm a good father, it doesn't happen that much anymore, but on the rare occurrence in which it does, I always say to them, it's not anything that I did because left to my own devices, I know that I'm not a good father. I'm short-tempered. I have really, really unfair expectations of a six-year-old kid. I expect him to repay my kindness with obedience, and it doesn't always happen, and I lose my temper a lot. But in the times when I repent for the ways that I'm not a great father, and I go to God, what do I do? I experience what it means to have a good father. I have a father who receives me, who welcomes me, who loves me, and that's how I love, that's where I love my son from. And you can go down this list. When I repent, God welcomes me, so I grow in my hospitality towards others. When I repent, God is not quick to show anger towards me, so I grow in my patience with others. It's when we repent and we go to God and we learn how much he loves us that we can better love other people. That's how we grow in holiness. That's how we grow in godliness is when we experience how great of a God we have. And I'm not saying that hard work is bad. I'm not saying that trying is bad. I'm not saying that you shouldn't look at qualifications that you don't meet and think of ways that you should better meet those things. Having a good reputation, being mindful of how people perceive you, there's wisdom in all those things. But hard work can only get you so far. But what I'm telling you is that love can change your life. Love is what can change who you are as a person. When we receive the love of God, we can can become inspired to work hard and to make all of our hard work worth it. And you can tell how loved a person is by God by the way that they approach repentance. We should also realize that the spiritual integrity that Paul speaks about here, it's not just reserved for those who want to be elders, but it's an expectation for all of us in the church. It's interesting to see that Paul seems so concerned that Christians not emulate the world, that Christians should stick out in this world. And there's many people to here today who have who have, have made this profession of faith. And there's many people here today who would say that they are a follower of Christ. But I ask you, do you have spiritual integrity? The measure, the value of that profession of faith, how does it show up on Friday or Saturday nights? How does it show up when you're away from the church? How does it show up when you're alone with your romantic partner? How does it show up in your workplace? 
How does it show up when you're in the club or when you're on a business trip and nobody can see? Do you have spiritual integrity? Because Paul is deeply concerned that every believer would live a life of spiritual integrity. That our profession is adorned by our lives. And he's so willing, he's so concerned that he's willing to say that elders can lose their jobs if their spiritual integrity is not reflected in their family. And yet Paul is saying that this same expectation is for all of us. That every believer, every Christian in the church would represent these kinds of, this kind of spiritual integrity to an immoral culture. I can't imagine something that might be more relevant for us today. It doesn't even need to be articulated or translated from the first century because we're facing the exact same thing. The world, in, the world is in the church and the church is in the world and Paul is saying, no, we are to be in the world but not to be like it. All of us need to be held to this standard of spiritual integrity because the whole world is looking at the church and waiting for us to be found in hypocrisy. A lot of you guys know this, um, oh, I forgot his name, the uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye guy, Joshua Harris. It was big news this week that he kind of, um, you know, rejected the tenets of his book and that he, uh, that he, that he uh, backed away from his faith. I read about this article in the New York Times, the Washington Post. Everybody was talking about it. But the thing is, they didn't care about Joshua Harris at all before he went back on his faith. They never cared about his book. They never cared about his book being the reason why you didn't get to go to homecoming. Nobody cared until there was a public Christian who went back on his faith and then the world was talking about it. The world was ablaze in talking about it. It's because the world is waiting to look at the church and judge it for its lack of integrity. And so we are called to have an integrity in our faith. And it's not just about trying harder to meet some list of qualifications. It's not about committing to just change yourself. It's not about even believing that you yourself are capable of fixing what's wrong with you. Instead, biblically, what we're looking at is a system where we're called to imitate our elders. And that's a good thing if you have good elders. If you have elders who are less concerned with the outside of the cup and more concerned with the inside of the cup. If you have elders who are less concerned with how they perform and more concerned about how they repent. If you have elders who repent and run to Jesus on the cross, then you have elders who are worthy of imitation. And lastly, elders instruct from the word. Elders instruct from the word. Paul writes, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, elders have to be zealous for the word of God. They have to be devoted to sound doctrine. People can't be taught the word if a leader loves his own teaching or his own eloquence more than the word of God. Think of it like this. If the, if the word of God is a radio wave, the elder is the receiver, and his primary responsibility is not to introduce any noise or interference with that radio wave. The signal has to be kept as high as possible. Or think about it another way. If Jesus had chosen not to ascend 
instead decided just to walk around for the next 2,000 years, and we could all flock to sit at his feet and to listen to him, like he was the Dalai Lama or something, and just sit and listen to Jesus preach, then this idea of elders in every town wouldn't be that important because we could just go listen to Jesus. But instead, what we see in the church by God's design is broken people leading broken people. Therefore, devotion to the word of God is what preserves the gospel signal over noise or interference. Your elders have to love and cherish and value the word of God. Notice the big picture here when you pull back, even in this verse. They talk about instruction and they talk about rebuke. But they aren't using, they're not talking about elders who use the word of God to condemn people or to make them feel, or to make them themselves feel better. These elders aren't using the scriptures or the word of God as a weapon or a means to an end for themselves. They aren't using it to judge people. And they aren't using it to their own gain. They aren't using it to their own gain. Remember in verse 7, Paul says that they cannot be greedy for gain, their own selfish gain. And this is what I'm telling you to be careful about elders and how the way that they use the word. If I or any other elder constantly uses the word of God to rebuke you or to correct you for being selfish, if I keep telling you to pick up your cross and listen to me, but when you look back at, back at it, every time I ask you to pick up your cross and do something that I want you to do, I'm the one who benefits? Then you have to really question if the elder is truly, truly in love with God's word or if he's just using it for his own selfish gain and his own purposes. So ask yourself, when your elder uses the word for correction, when your elder uses the word for rebuke, who benefits from it? Because it should be you. You should benefit from it. Elders are faithful to the word because they love the word. That's important. But also because it's a loving thing to do for their people. They get instruction from the word of God and they rebuke from the word of God because it's the best way to help people grow in their knowledge of God. Elders love people and they want to see them grow and that's why they instruct them and rebuke them from the word of God. They're hospitable, so they're kind to people. They display Christ-like qualities. They love what is good and what is good is displayed in the way that they live. They love what is good. They love what is true. But they have to love people because that's what God does. To go back to imitation, elders imitate God through their experiences of times of repentance. And that's how they understand how much God loves them. That's how they understand how God is so forgiving and so patient with them. And if you even go back to Jesus' teachings on the vine and the branches, the love of God that an elder experiences through repentance before God, that's where he, that's where his services overflow from. 
And if we just see this model happen, if we're imitating people who experience God through repentance, then we would become a people that would experience God through repentance and we would become more patient and kind and hospitable and loving and we would be more of a light into this world because people would look at the church and be like, there's a difference there. That's a church that loves people. That's available enough that they can be involved in the lives of their community, involved in the lives of their friends and families and the people that they take the bus with. That church, that's a people who are loved by God and you can see it in the way that they repent. You can see it in the ways that they don't get defensive when they've been caught in a mistake. That they don't rationalize when they've done something wrong, but they own it. And they own it because they know that God will receive them, that God will not turn their backs on them, that God will not reject them. And that, 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 that security that they find in those times of repentance overflows in the ways that they interact with people. And the world would see people who love the word of God, that, can, that, 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 that they can use it not to judge and condemn the sinfulness of the world, but that they can use it to show people the glory of God and a God who calls them to repentance and calls them to himself. And the hope, the plan, the design is that as we appoint leaders who, have, who live out lives in these ways, that we could recognize the work of God, that, that the work of God that, that has happened in their lives and realize that God can work in our lives in the same ways so that what could be said of our elders could be said of our church. Let's pray.